Remain standing, please, by your heads and let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've entrusted us as your people with a message of hope for a world that is without hope. And Father, we pray that you will burn that message deeply into us, not just into our minds, but into our hearts, into our whole lives, that we may go out and live and speak for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please do sit down and please would you turn to that passage that... Jody read to us, it's Matthew chapter 5, and you'll find it on page 968. Page 968, Matthew 5. I want you to imagine that you're a first century Jew. Okay? So think thongs. Okay, and there you are, you are at the bottom of that, what Matthew calls a a mountainside, there in Matthew 5. You're gathered with this disparate group of people. The end of chapter 4 talks about people, first century Jews who've come from all over, north, south, east and west, some are from Jerusalem, some are from more far-flung places, and there you are, you're gathered at the foot of this hillside, this mountain side. You may be a very different group of people, diverse in so many ways, with all kinds of different experiences, but there is a, a story that binds you together. It's a story that's come down to you to every generation. It's a story about your ancestors way back who were there in Egypt. It was the only place they'd known for hundreds of years. It had been their home and it had become their place of oppression. Imagine that. The place where you live, the place that you call home, becomes the place where you suffer where you're thrown into slavery, where you are threatened with national extinction. And the story that has come down to you is how your ancestors are rescued from their slavery in Egypt, taken out of oppression, and they are brought via the sea to the foot of a mountain. And there at that mountain... God arrives, and there he speaks to these people who have so little in so many ways in common. They share a racial background. They share a common experience of slavery and oppression and genocide and then of this recent rescue. But they're a very diverse group of people. But here, God appears on the mountain And speaks to his servant Moses who keeps going up and down the mountain. And here at Sinai, God forges this people into a nation. With a common identity, a common worship, a common purpose. They are now Israel, the people of God, tasked with a purpose. Which is to fulfill that promise that God had made to Abraham that he would bless him and make a great people of him and through him 
all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There on Sinai, God constitutes a people through whom the whole of the creation that goes wrong in Genesis 3, the whole of creation would be brought back, would be saved. That's the task that Israel is given at the foot of Sinai. That's the story of your people. It's the story of your nation. It's the story of your race. It's the story that as a first century Jew has just been drilled into you. This is who you are. That experience at Sinai was a moment of enormous privilege for the people of God. It's where God says, you're my people. And you have a task. And it's through you I'm going to save the entire creation. That's your task. But it's also a terrifying experience. If you read those events in Exodus 19 and following, when God turns up, there is a cloud and there's fire and there's thunder and there are rumblings and the earth shakes. And only Moses and a small group of people are allowed to go and converse with God. And even then... He's hidden from them. Meanwhile, Moses comes down to the people and says, God says, you mustn't come near the mountain. You mustn't touch it. Because if you do, you will die. It is a reminder to them, which is picked up time and time again in the Bible, that when you approach God on his terms, you can approach securely and safely. But if you don't, it's really really dangerous. God is utterly unlike us. And so there the people gathered at the foot of Sinai are told that they mustn't come near. There is a fence in effect erected at the foot of Sinai for their protection. It's a reminder of how utterly different God is. That's the foundational story for you, as a first century Jew, you remember all the way back to where God said, you are my people. And my people tasked with a job to do. That's your story. And now here we are all these centuries later, and your nation has been through all kinds of experiences. And particularly for the previous 400 years, you've seen those hopes in so many ways shredded. So many things have happened to you. Your nation has been destroyed. You've not been able to rule yourself. All those things that held you together, that are given there at Sinai, common purpose, common worship, a common identity, a common way of life, a common hope. All of those things in so many ways have been weakened and have been effectively destroyed. And so as you gather there at the foot of that mountainside in Matthew 5, this disparate group of people, you are very similar to those slaves freed from Egypt who met at the foot of Sinai. And there you are. And here... Once more, as at Sinai, God addresses his people. Matthew 5, these beatitudes, 
Jesus going up onto the mountainside, chapter 5 and verse 1. He goes up there. You notice what he does? He sits down because he sees the crowd. And he isn't going up the mountainside to escape from them. He is going there to sit down because that's what teachers did. He's there to teach them. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, we realize it's not just the disciples, the inner core, but it's all the people came and listened to Jesus as he spoke. This is God addressing his people. This is the rerun of Sinai, where Jesus is giving them an identity, a way, a purpose. He's reconstituting a people. And this is God addressing them. Because you remember Jesus is son of David, son of Abraham, son of God, and, and Emmanuel, God with us. As Jesus sits down on the mount there and addresses the people, it is God speaking to these people and reconstituting them as this new people, his people. Uh, do you notice the difference, differences, though, between this time and last time? Sinai, the smoke and clouds and lightning and thunder and terror in all the privilege. Here, there's no smoke. There are no clouds. There's no thunder. There are no restrictions. Anyone can come. Anyone. And so there you are, a first century Jew, and you go up the mountain, and you hear these words, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the poor, poor, pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Who's Jesus talking about? If you're a first century Jew and you hear those words, one of the things that will come into your mind is a second story that's been handed down to you. It's the story of how your nation went wrong, disobeyed God until the day came when the Babylonians swept through and conquered the entire nation, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took people out into exile. When Jesus says here, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, he is describing the righteous, godly exiles amongst those who were taken prisoner to Babylon. Not all the exiles. Not all the exiles, because he goes on to talk about these are the merciful and these are the pure in heart and so on. He is describing the godly exiles, those who'd remained faithful to God, but were nevertheless taken into exile. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Amongst those people who went into exile, godly people, there were people who'd seen their homes destroyed, their livelihoods had gone. 
There were fathers who'd seen their wives raped and their daughters raped and then killed. There were wives, mothers who'd seen their husbands killed and their sons put to the sword and their little children smashed against rocks to kill them. These are people who'd lost everything. They are the poor in spirit, utterly crushed, and their only hope is in God himself. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. These were the ones who mourned for what they had lost. The temple had been destroyed. Their identity had been destroyed. And with that, their purpose to fulfill God's plan for them, that they were to be the agent through which God would save the entire creation. And it's all gone. It's been wiped out. And Israel's God, their God, and his reputation has been trashed. And they mourn. They mourn for that by the rivers of Babylon. We sat down and wept when we remembered Jerusalem, says Psalm 137. And then our tormentors came to us and asked us to sing a song. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. These are people who mourn for what's been lost. They are the meek. They recognize they have no claim on God other than his commitment to them. They have nothing to boast about in themselves. They hunger and thirst after righteousness. In the face of this loss, this violence, this outpouring of war and hate, of profound evil and injustice that they have experienced, they cry out, for God to bring his kingdom and his justice. And I imagine them praying something like this. Father in heaven, all the nations are but a drop in the bucket to you. You are the Lord of the nations. Father in heaven, may your name be hallowed. May your kingdom come. Your righteous rule be restored. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, please, would you work? Does that ring any bells? Does that prayer ring any bells? Because that's what Jesus is going to go on and teach to his disciples, his followers, these people who are at the foot of, who are on the mountain, and to us. The Lord's Prayer is the prayer of exile. Those who recognize that God's righteous rule has not yet come, and they pray for it to come. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, that's what we're praying. We're praying the prayer of exiles, those who recognize that we're in a world that belongs to Jesus Christ, and we pray for his kingdom to come in all its fullness, and for righteousness to be restored. Jesus is describing the godly, faithful exiles, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, those who are the peacemakers. These are people who are living it out. Mercy, by the way, is what you extend to people who don't deserve mercy. If you deserve it, it's not mercy. I've told this story before, but I'm hoping you've got short memories. Um, it's said that a, a woman went to see the Emperor Napoleon because her son 
had been accused of desertion and so had been sentenced to death. And she went to plead for his life. And Napoleon turned to the mother and said, but he doesn't deserve it. She said, if he deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. Mercy is what we extend to those who don't deserve it. They are the pure in heart, which does not mean in that narrow sense they didn't watch pornography. I know that's anachronistic. There was no porn at the time. The pure in heart are those who act with integrity rather than manipulation to get their ways. And they are the peacemakers, those who work for peace rather than retribution and violence to achieve their ends. And the result, often they were persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. They hung on to God. And they weren't just persecuted by the people in the country they'd gone to and ridiculed. They were often ridiculed by their own people. Why are you remaining faithful to God? Look at what's happened. He couldn't defend us. He couldn't even protect the temple. What's the point? As you listen to those words there in the first century as a Jew, you think about the exiles. But you don't stop there. I've sometimes wondered if some of those hearing the words of Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. I've wondered sometimes if some of them wept. Because if you're a first century Jew who's trying to be faithful to God, he's talking about you. This is you he's describing. Poor in spirit because you're crushed by the moral and economic and social and religious bankruptcy of everything around you. Mourning for the loss that is the state of God's people and therefore of God's reputation. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Father, please would you send your Messiah to come and bring the rule of justice and righteousness Jesus is talking about you, faithful Israel. And I wondered if some of them wept. Because you never thought to hear those words. And what you're hearing, the words of divine reversal. Do you notice that? Divine reversal. So many people in Israel had capitulated. They decided the only way to get on was to exercise power the way the Romans exercised power. There was moral and spiritual bankruptcy all over the place. And they were the people who often did well. But here are the words of divine reversal. Reversing the verdict of Rome and the verdict of contemporary society. Blessed. God says to them. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And so on. Perhaps they wept. Could this be true? Perhaps they wept because hope had been kindled in them. Perhaps some of them wept for joy. Maybe their minds went back to a passage like Isaiah 40 where Isaiah is told by God that there's a day coming when the word of comfort will be spoken to God's people. 
in exile. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. These are the words of comfort they're hearing. Blessed are you. Or later on in chapter 40, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice and shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. And the sovereign Lord comes and he goes on to say, he will tend his flock like a shepherd and gather the lambs in his arm and carries those close to his heart. He gently leads those who are with young. Do you hear the echoes of what's going on in Matthew 5? This is God in the person of Jesus Christ pronouncing the divine reversal. Now you've read to the end of Matthew, of course, haven't you? Encourage me this morning. Tell me you've read to the end. You know how it works out. See, Matthew also wants us to know something else, which kind of a first century Jew would have picked up anyway. Because in those, what we call the Beatitudes, the blessed are the poor in spirit and so on, was the description of Israel's coming Messiah and King. These are the things that would concern him. Most of all, Matthew wants to see that these, us to see that these are descriptions of Jesus. He is the one who is poor in spirit He's the one who trusts in God. He's the one who mourns. You remember in Luke's gospel, he comes to the city of the king, to Jerusalem. He comes as the king. And he enters the city weeping for Jerusalem. His zeal for righteousness and God's righteous rule. He goes into the temple and says, this should be called a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves. He's the one who is meek, who is humble. Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and carrying heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find my burden. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. These are descriptions of Jesus and they're fulfilled supremely on the cross. Well, you're not a first century Jew, are you? (laughs) Thank you so much. What's this got to do with us? And the answer is everything. Everything. At the end of, or towards the end of chapter 4 in verse 17, as Jesus arrives on the scene, begins his ministry, he calls for repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. These beatitudes are the hallmarks of repentance. This is what repentance looks like. 
And they are the continued characteristics of God's people. Repentance, by the way, is not something you do at the beginning of your Christian life and then you move on to the next stage. Repentance is what characterizes your Christian life. And these are the hallmarks of those who are repentant of God's people. And do you notice they are a complete inversion of what the world calls blessed? Do you notice that? Have a look. What does the world say? Blessed are the powerful because you can achieve your aims, your heart's desire, so get power. What does Jesus say? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. They've turned their back on the way that the world does things and their trust is in God and sometimes as a result of that, the world will laugh at them because they'll say you're a failure. The world says, blessed are those, truly happy are those who achieve what they want. Those who live in Willoughby. Happy are those who can afford to live in Willoughby. What does Jesus say? Blessed are those who mourn because they see how things are. They see the way the world is. They see how God is dishonored, how justice and righteousness don't prevail. They mourn for neighbors, they mourn for friends, they mourn for themselves. Blessed are those who are meek. The world says, blessed are those who can fulfill themselves. Be yourself, you can be anything. Follow your heart. Jesus says, blessed are those who realize they're not the center of the universe, the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Hunger and thirst for more than success and power and money. And by the way, please don't ever limit this to the very narrow, how can I be right with God? Please do not do it. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness are those who pray the Lord's prayer and mean it. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your justice come. May your rule come. May your peace come. May evil be ended. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The world says, blessed are those who hunger for money and success and power. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the righteous rule of God to come. I went to see a film on Thursday last week. It's called Chasing Asylum. It's still on at Cremorne for the next couple of weeks. Uh, If you can, uh, I go. It is, as far as I can tell, both a devastating and an accurate description of what successive Australian governments have done, particularly in places like Nauru and Manus Island, to those who are amongst the weakest, most vulnerable people on the planet. 
I, I expected to be confronted, and so it wasn't a surprise in some ways. But these are descriptions of what the Australian government have done in your name and mine. And one of the most chilling things was these asylum seekers are given a number and it reaches the stage where they're often just called by their number. They had drawings that children had done and it had reached the stage where the children no longer used their name to sign the pictures. They wrote their number. God's people are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness and say we want justice to come. That is, we want God's justice. Yes, we want our politicians to exercise justice, but we recognize that it's only when God's kingdom comes into people's lives individually and ultimately when Jesus returns and brings in the kingdom in all its fullness will God's rule of righteousness begin. People who hunger and thirst after righteousness and then live it out. Look at what Jesus says in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Why? Because you need to be different. You need to live this out. And if you're not different, you're a waste of time. I'll throw you away. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others. What does that mean? that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. People who will put into practice what Jesus is saying here. And the greatest exemplar of that is the one who is lifted up on a hill, nailed to a cross, who is the light of the world. We're to live it out to be merciful, giving compassion and grace to those who don't deserve it because that's what mercy is. Those who are pure in heart, which as I say is not just about not watching porn. It's about integrity, moral integrity, about not being manipulative in order to get your own way, not being duplicitous, saying what people want to hear so that you can get your way, but instead being pure in heart. And those finally, who are the peacemakers pursuing peace and reconciliation. It's not about destroying people in order to fulfill your dreams. And here's the thing, as a result of that, <laughs> there are times when the world will hate us. Hate us. Because all these things are an inversion of what the world says is how it ought to be. And so if we're living out differently, we are a challenge to them. And it will at some points or other bring us into conflict. What has this got to do with us? Absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. As you go out into this week and whatever this week looks for you and you experience the world as it is, some of you will go to work this week and you'll experience the world as it is. Some of you will 
be doing other things this week and the way that the world is says the blessed life is having the ability the power to exercise control over your life and achieve your dreams and you see your bosses and your people at work behaving like that the world says blessed is your life when it's going well for you and you're achieving success and you'll see that as you go out into this week and it seems to make sense what Jesus is saying feels at times and you will perhaps sense it this week it feels improbable the blessed life says the world is when you can truly be yourself and do whatever you want to do when you put your dreams and ambitions and satisfaction at the center and then it works and you go to work and you go out into this week and you see people who are behaving like that and they're being successful and they're doing well and you sense your own fear, failure in those terms. And maybe you hear people talking to you, saying, if you just did life differently, you would do so much better. And there's the pressure to conform. As you go out into this week, I want you to hear the words of Jesus. You're blessed if you're poor in spirit. You are blessed if you are those who mourn. You are blessed if you are meek. You are blessed if you hunger and thirst after righteousness. I want you to hear those words. Speak them to yourself this week. Say, God says, I am blessed. I have heard the word of divine reversal. Speak them to yourself. Say them out loud if you're brave. If you're not, just say them. I'm blessed. Jesus has said so. God has spoken that word of reversal. And whatever people may say and whatever I may experience from them and however much I look at their lives and see their success, they don't have what I have. I have the word of blessing. On my life and then go and live it let's pray father we thank you for your word to us we thank you that it is a word of blessing to us you have spoken the word of divine reversal to those who are in Jesus Father, may those words burn into us and ignite in us a passion for you and for your creation and your world and your purposes in this world. And may we go out as those who have been commissioned to be light in the darkness, to shine in this dark world the glorious light of your gospel. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.